This guy, his name is uh, Carlos Kaiser. He was a professional soccer player, sort of. Um, I'll explain what I mean by the sort of. He was uh, born in Brazil, um, but he signed, I think he signed when he was 16 or 17 years old with a professional team in Mexico. And this was back in the 80s. But he didn't last long. I think it was a couple of months, and uh, he was released by the team. I mean, he was good, but he wasn't that good, I guess. Um, so he goes back to Brazil, and he proceeds to um, con his way back into the pros in Mexico. Uh, and this was his strategy. What he would do is uh, he was very uh, well-versed in uh, the professional league or the leagues in Mexico, really watching the teams and he would notice when a particular team was looking to um, expand their roster for whatever the reason, um, but he'd be on the lookout for it, and when that was the case, he'd pounce. He'd be right there, and um, he'd try out, and um, they'd give him a contract, like a short-term contract. They probably needed him for the remainder of that season, so, you know, nothing long-term, but he'd sign. Um, and then what he would do uh, right away upon signing of the contract is he'd say to them that uh, he needed about a month or so to get in shape. So give him a month or maybe five or six weeks and he'll be good to go. Collecting a paycheck during that time because he had signed the contract. When he was finally now in shape, um, his first game, he would immediately fake an injury and he'd then need like another four or five weeks to uh, heal this completely fake injury still getting paid what he'd do then is um, he would get close to the to the local reporters and uh, ultimately uh, he'd kind of like build a relationship with them and then he'd bribe them and he bribed them to uh, write positive stories about him. I start talking about this prospect, this kind of this mystery guy who's come on the scene and uh, his ability. So what would happen then was other teams were reading about this guy and they would start to bid on this contract. The contract that he'd already signed, when they would, he would try to renegotiate it. And, uh, and he would. And he'd end up getting a better deal and more money. And he had never even played in a game yet at this point. Like literally hadn't even been on the field. Well, he did this for nine years. Uh, ten different teams he signed these kind of short-term contracts with. And he kind of dodged the authorities for, for ten years. Um, he never played a full game in 10 years. Never completed a full game. One season, he was uh, coming off of one of these fake injuries, and the owner of uh, the team he was playing on was kind of watching him and was becoming a little skeptical. He was beginning to think there was maybe something up with this guy. So the, the owner says to the coach, as soon as he's off the disabled list, I want him on the field. I want him playing 
day one, game one, as soon as he's able. So the coach tells him that, and this guy's now got to figure out, what am, I, what am I gonna do? So the day he's back, the start of the game, he goes over before the game begins, he goes over to the, uh, the opposing stands where the fans from the other team are, and he starts to fight with one of these fans, and he gets tossed out of the game. The game hasn't even begun, but he's been told now he can't even play in the game about to be. He claimed that one of the guy that he got in the fight with was cursing out the owner. And the owner was kind of flattered by the fact that he went to his defense. So the owner gave him a six-month extension on his contract. None of this ever happened. The guy never cursed anybody out. This guy started the fight. And he pulled this stuff for 10 years. Um, you know, kind of a, an amusing story, kind of a cute story. But this guy, Carlos, was a fraud. Like, a total fraud. He said one thing, and he'd do another. Remember the movie uh, with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Tom Hanks, um, Catch Me If You Can? Spielberg directed it. it uh, it's almost like the same story. This guy, true story, this guy, DiCaprio plays this guy, his first name is Frank. I forget his last name, but he uh, was kind of, what was it? Abignale, that's right. He was a um, kind of this master of deception. He was a kid. He was just a, an unbelievable sneak, very clever sneak. Uh, by the time, before he was 21, he had convinced this local hospital that he was a doctor. And then he convinced uh, people in this small town in the south that he was a lawyer. And then later on, he convinced this hospital no, I already told you that. He convinced this airline <laughs> that he was a pilot. So he spent time in a cockpit as a, a co-pilot. He spent time in an ER pretending he was a doctor. And he argued a case and he wasn't even a lawyer. Like that's how clever this guy was. This would happen for years at a time and then he'd get caught even went to jail a few times, and then he'd get out of jail, and he'd, he'd have another scheme. He was like Carlos, the, the fake soccer player. They're just not what they claimed to be. They pretended they were somebody else. Let me listen to this again. This is Jesus. Beware of the scribes who like to go around in long, fancy robes. Look at me. Look at how I look. Look how special I am. Look how important I am. And they accept greetings in the market. They accept seats of honor and places of honor. And then they take advantage of the weakest and the most vulnerable, the widows who had almost nothing. They rip them off and they justify it with long prayers. Well, what does Jesus say about 
them, they will receive a very severe condemnation. Man, some people are just very good at being fake, aren't they? Jesus didn't like fake. Fake is what angered him the most, I think. I think if you took all the gospel stories and you kind of calculated, when when was Jesus most often really annoyed, really angry, really most frustrated? I think it was when he was dealing with fake, fake people. You know, that Spielberg movie, it was based on a book written by that guy, Frank, the soccer player. Some journalist wrote a book on his story, and they made a movie about it. Like, what's this attraction? Why the books and why the movies about these kinds of people? I mean, maybe on one level you say, well, it's because they were interesting, kind of entertaining stories. Like, how could these people have done these things for a decent amount of time and gotten away with it? That is kind of just objectively interesting, right? But I also wonder if there's another reason. Could it be that we're sort of drawn to these people because on some level, we might see some aspect of ourselves in those people? Because we can be fake too. And maybe we like these stories because we think, all right, I I know I'm fake, but I'm not as fake as that guy. I'm not as fake as the soccer guy. I'm not as fake as the guy who pretended he was an airline pilot. Jesus liked transparency. Man, is there, a, is there an absence of transparency in your life which would really kind of annoy Jesus? I mean, I think there is in all of us, right? We are all, to some degree, fake. Some of us are very good at it, very fake. I think even the the best of us, we're never completely authentic, we're never completely transparent, and maybe we never really can be. But there's the goal. It is to not be like the scribes, not be like the people that Jesus calls out in this gospel. People who just try to project this image of themselves that's just not accurate. Man, you ever get I'm sure you do. You ever, at Christmas, when you get Christmas cards, you open up the Christmas card and there's a a folded piece of paper. It's like a front and back paragraphs, a photocopy from whoever sent you the card. They're kind of giving you like what happened in their life in the last year, how the last year went. Isn't it always so great? Johnny's been offered so many scholarships, we just can't believe it. He's made every rich college that he had. Sally's living in the suburbs and just with the perfect family. Timmy made the honor roll again. Jenny just got another promotion. We're so proud of Jenny. We've decided to, we've taken up photography and tennis. It's like, look at us. We're awesome. No, you're not. You're annoying. You're really annoying. 
Nobody's that good. Nobody's that perfect. It's a fake picture. It's the picture of the life that we want people to think that we're living. And I'm not saying everybody, everybody who makes those letters does that. Of course not. Some people are very humble and real about it. But I don't know. There's just something about them that often is just like, get over yourself. Like, that's just not, that's just not real. But think about social media. Like Facebook, when you, you know, you, got your, like your, this, you, you get to put together your own profile. I mean, do you ever put a, a bad picture of yourself, like an unflattering picture of yourself? It's like, no, I'm only going to put the pictures where I, I kind of look good and I'm doing these exciting things. It's only the good stuff. I mean, did you ever hear a, somebody post on Facebook about themselves like, my son failed chemistry again. We're going for marriage counseling again. My daughter got arrested again. I mean, nobody's going to do that. We usually do the opposite to make everything look so good. You know, and then you meet people who really are the opposite. Like, what you see is what you get. It's so refreshing, aren't those people? Like, they really are transparent. And again, not 100%, but way more than most. They don't wear masks and costumes. They don't feel this need to kind of like make them and themselves and their lives like better than they are. They're just honest. You ask them how work is going and you get like, well, okay, to be honest with you, not so great. I'm working for this boss who's a lunatic and I can't really get out from under him. And realistically right now, I, I don't really have the opportunity to, you know, get a transfer or another job. So it's, it's tough. Man, I thought you were going to tell me work was great. We'd be on to the next question. How's it going? How's the family? Ah. The kids are okay, but one of them's keeping me up at night. Another one's dating this guy who's just a moron, and I'm worried about that. One of them is just not as mature as he needs to be, and it's kind of taken him years to get out of college. He just can't seem to focus, and they're just so honest. You know what I find is so often the effects of that honesty? We respond with similar honesty because it's so disarming. We're like, yeah, yeah, my life isn't so perfect either. Some of my kids are making me crazy. And I'm having a tough time here and there. It becomes like this very sort of supportive conversation. It's just real. He hated fake. And he loved authentic. You know, listen to this. This is written by a, a priest. This experience he had. Several years ago, I was approached by a, a man who asked me to be his spiritual director. He was in his mid-40s, and he almost... Almost everything about him radiated a certain health. 
He just seemed to have it together. I mentioned that he seemed to be in such a good space when we met. He said, yes, I actually am. I'm, I'm feeling really good. But it wasn't always that way. And he goes, goes on to explain. This is what he says. I haven't always been in a good space in my life. In fact, it's been a long struggle to get where I am today. For more than 20 years from the time I left high school until three years ago, I struggled with addictions. Two of them in particular, alcohol and sex. I, I had them enough under control that I could essentially hide them from my family and my friends and my colleagues. As well, I never acted out in a very dangerous way. I was addicted, but I still had good control in my life. At least I thought I did. The problem was I was living a double life, showing one life to my family and friends and living another life secretly. I never missed a day of work and I was always able to function at a high level professionally. But my life slowly began to fixate around those addictions, hiding them, lying about my activities, protecting my privacy, daily anxiety. I functioned decently within my work and my relationships, but my mind and my heart and my real attention were focused on something else, my addictions. I'm not sure what the exact trigger was since there were a number of things that happened almost at the same time. My father died. I had a couple of near escapes in terms of being discovered and some just simple shame. But three years ago, I went on a retreat to a monastery and I had the courage to go to confession and I spoke with the priest. He suggested that I get into a recovery program. In fact, I should get into two, one for the drink and the other for the sex. I took his advice, and all I can say is that it's completely turned my life around. I've been sober now for three years, and the best way that I can describe it is that now I see color again. Nothing feels as great as honesty. I've never been this happy. I'm now living in the light. You know, since I've been down in Long Beach, nine years now, I think I probably had six or seven funerals where people died of uh, opioid overdose. At least six or seven. It might even be a few more. It's very interesting when you... You meet with the families. Um, it seems to me, my experience has been, they react in one of two different ways. Sometimes they're very open about it. They acknowledge it right away, no secret. And they're okay with me talking about it, at least in kind of an appropriate way. It's easier for me, because I don't have to kind of dance around kind of the elephant in the room. And then sometimes you get other families where it's not quite so open. They don't really explain what happened. He was 28 and he died in his sleep. Nobody has an explanation. They really do, but they just don't want to talk about it. So they're very mysterious. Listen, people have a right to grieve the way they want. They have a right to their privacy. And if they want to respect the, the deceased in a certain way, it's, it's their right and their business. 
You have to honor that. But I would tell you this. When people acknowledge the elephants in the room, when they acknowledge sort of the struggles a person had, sort of the demons that plague them, there just seems to be more freedom in the church. Because I think potentially people are being helped. There's just more freedom. It's one less thing to kind of hide and make look better than it really is. I think it's what Jesus pushed us toward and railed against with the religious leaders in particular because there was such little transparency. They were just so fake. You know, that guy who went on that retreat, the guy who had the addictions, I love what he said there. I'm now living in the light. I've never been this happy. Nothing feels as great as honesty. I mean, one more time, can you think of just one part, one piece, one aspect of your life, maybe as an individual, maybe as a family, that's sort of lacking transparency? Too many masks, too many disguises. Some part that's not living in the light. Go after that. Find the light and live in it.